Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast on Germany. My name is Jacob, and this is a special episode. We have with us Dr. Rubel. Uh, she uh, received her master's and her Ph.D. at uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Beautiful campus, by the way. Uh, and she currently teaches at Spring Hill College in Alabama. I saw you shake your head. You don't completely agree with Chapel Hill being that beautiful? Oh, no, I do. No, that was meant to oh, be okay. like a... I went to Texas Tech, which is middle of the desert. You know, it's it's um, its beauty is not that great. So when I went to Chapel Hill for a, um, a conference, uh, it was very beautiful <laughs> compared to where I was coming from. Um, so, but thank you for coming and joining us. Yeah, thank you. So uh, you um, study uh, gender history, uh, specifically you look at uh, post-war Germany, correct? Yes. Yes. Uh, could you uh, uh, perhaps set the scene for us a little bit, going from you know uh, the role of women from uh, the Nazi era to today? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a big question. Um, so I guess to kind of the to set the scene, um, I'll give you the image of what captured my attention about this this topic. Uh, in the first place, you know, way back when I was like 19 and taking a class on post-war Germany and I was studying abroad in the Czech Republic and um, I had just been to Berlin like for the first time, you know. Um, and uh, what really captured my attention at that point in time was this kind of now iconic image of the Trümmerfrauen or the, the woman of the rubble or the women of the rubble. Um, and essentially, you know, when... Nazis are defeated in May of 1945. Uh, Germany is just destroyed. Um, and what happens over the next couple of months, um, you know, and partly because, depending on where you are in Germany, partly due to voluntary efforts, partly due to conscription, particularly, I think, by the Soviet um, Red Army and so on, um, women uh, are the ones that are rebuilding Germany in many ways. Um, there is a surplus of something like 7 million women to men. Um, and I have to say, the, the idea of it being a surplus is like a very strange historical wording, right? Concept, but, yeah. um, but, you know, but I mean, there's just so many men who have, who have died, who have not returned home, particularly from the Eastern Front. Um, there simply is a demographic imbalance and there's more women than men. So this entire process falls on the shoulders of women in many ways. Um, so some of the things that I, you know, this is what captured my attention, this idea of like, wow, you know, it's women who are rebuilding the society. And I mean, quite literally rebuilding it. Uh, when we see images of them like out in the rubble, just taking bricks and passing it to the next woman, um, the cover of I think it's Conrad Auer, um, Yarosh's Out of Ashes actually has that image on it. Um, you know, and so it, it's just this it becomes in many ways like the feminist movement in the 1960s really plays up this image as well. Um, it becomes this iconic image of at least in West Germany of women rebuilding. Um, and a fair bit in East Germany, too, of course, because of their policies on women's emancipation and so on. Um, and so, you know, that was something that just really from the get go captured my interest is, um, you know, first of all, what does this process look like um, in a place where where that demographic imbalance has been um, you know, just so well established? Um, and then, you know, that opened, I think, a lot of doors for me as a historian looking forward um, so what I ended up doing from that point on was actually going kind of to the opposite end and um, for a paper that I wrote as an undergrad, um, the topic of the paper was supposed to do with something having to do with um, German reunification or I guess the end of the Cold War more broadly and uh, its impact on Europe. So what I looked at was how this affected women and gender and particularly in the two Germanies as they tried to reunify. Um, and what's, I think, now established as part of the historical canon a bit is that, um, you know, that it was kind of a messy unification when it came to gender and when it came to women's rights. Um, there were things that East German women um, had come to, I think, appreciate and take for granted from the communist dictatorship. Um, things like state-sponsored child care, um, having longer maternity leaves, um, you know, those sorts of, of rights, right, that were available to them that, um, and they had something like, um, it hovered around 90% full employment rate for women, um, whereas West Germany at that point in 1989, 1990, um, when we're looking at full-time employment, it's like half that, it's somewhere around 50, I believe 55%, but I'd have to look up those those numbers off, um, 
you know, I don't know them quite off the top of my head, but somewhere around there. Um, you know, childcare was, was not supported. Um, there was still half day school system. So you can imagine, you know, if you're a woman who wants to work a full time job, but your kid is in school half day, you're forced to make a choice, right? Especially yeah. if you don't have daycare, um, that's there. And that's a problem that we're now, right, really confronting right now in the pandemic too. Um, and so coming at it from the other side, you know, I, I had learned about all this stuff in my class. Then I wrote this paper on it, kind of examining um, both sides of that. So I was just always really interested in this question, well, how did they go from, you know, point A of the total destruction, it's the women who are shouldering this burden, to point B where um, women do end up with vastly different rights and they end up with vastly different statuses in these two societies and they're trying to then meld them together. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I mean, those are some of the things that I think captured my interest. And then as I started to look into it more, particularly in the early period, um, there were things that stood out to me, like um, almost immediately, pretty much within like three weeks to a month um, of Germany being defeated, uh, women's committees begin to form um, all across, both in East and West Germany. Um, but basically what happens is these what we would think of today as feminists, although they don't call themselves that at the time, um, but these old leaders of women's organizations that had been really active in the Weimar Republic um, and then had been forced um, sort of to dissolve themselves under the Nazi regime. Um, they reemerge and um, not only are they talking about women's rights in a very kind of, um, I guess we could say lofty or ideological sense, um, but they're looking at it from a pragmatic angle. Um, these are the women who are going out and um, collecting blankets and collecting food to help other women who are trying to, to raise their families. Um, so for me, I, I was really fascinated, you know, with everything that's going on the ground, um, with these women who are out in the rubble, but also the fact that, you know, that these women are starting to rebuild. They, right, they see this tabula rasa, so to speak, for women's rights, um, and that they they themselves are also rebuilding in this other way. They're trying to, um, and then some of those women end up teaming up with the American military government. Um, and essentially what happens then is the American military government decides that women are a great target for re-democratization efforts. Um, so they're really hitting it from all angles here. And um, mm -hmm. so, yeah, I mean, if, I guess if I were to set the scene, I would say, you know, there's there's total destruction. And yet this process of rebuilding on all levels, we're talking about political rebuilding, social, economic, women are at the core of that, and gender and gender roles are at the core of that. And um, those are the things I wanted to explore. Well, that's very fascinating. I know that um, uh, the women's women's rights and um, uh, women's abilities uh, outside of the home took a severe, severe hit when the Nazis came to power. Um, I know... Um, I remember reading an article uh, a couple of years ago where it was talking about how the Weimar Republic had been a uh, forerunner uh, in um, uh, women's roles and rights. And then with the arrival of the Nazis, that's just completely complete reversal of that attempt to reinforce the, the cult of domesticity uh, for women. How, that's where they're supposed to stay. So uh, it is interesting that you were able to uh, see a... Um, a uh, not a complete return, unfortunately, for the uh, for women as in the West at least, um, back to that uh, Weimarist age, but uh, at least some sort of return and uh, rejuvenation. And mm -hmm. it is it is something I never considered the fact that you know Germany spent uh, 39 through 45. They're in a war. Their male population, because the Nazis are saying guys only, uh, is completely cut. Uh, is slashed the ribbon, so it is um, up to the women who are going to have to step in and take in a lot of these roles. That's very yeah, fascinating. Absolutely, and I mean, and that's the thing too is um, is it does begin to change during the war. So as much as the the Nazi rhetoric is about right the you know Kinder Kirchhoffuka right mm -hmm. um, the cult of domesticity, the fact is during the war for very pragmatic um, shortage of manpower sorts of reasons, we do see women going to work in factories. We do see women in the workforce. Um, and of course, already at that stage, right, um, even at early stages in the war, you're getting men who aren't returning home. Um, so already women are shouldering that double burden, if you will, of raising their families um, and then of trying to work. <clears throat> and so already like those patterns are shifting even before um, Nazi Germany loses. Um, so that's fascinating, too, to see that um, 
And um, there's a historian who points this out, well, several who point this out, and I'm, I'm blanking on their names right now. But the essence of their argument is that the beautiful thing about gender history or women's history is periodization doesn't necessarily apply the way that we would normally think about it. Um, and so you, you know, you can completely reperiodize an entire century um, just based on looking at women's experiences. Um, so that's something that I've always found fascinating as well. Interesting. I wonder, um, how would you, um, would you be able to uh, reperiodize uh, German history based off of that idea? Um, that's an interesting question. I guess you could. I mean, I've never sat down and sketched out what that would look like exactly, but um, kind of interesting. Yeah, but I also get the feeling that it, you know, it wouldn't be a very linear timeline, right? You would just see yeah. sort of branches of it going off and overlapping, and two steps forward and three steps back, and another two forward, you know. Um, <laughs> so it'd be a very messy book to write. Um, just bit, but you know, that's that's what the fun ones are. They're always the messy ones. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, uh, you mentioned that uh, the East and West, uh, by the time of reunification, had drastic, uh, drastic positions for women. Um, where is this? Where is this coming from? Why is the East and the West so drastic in this um, situation? Yeah, so there's there's a couple of different things that are going into that, um, and. You know, there's, uh, all right, based on some of the, the things that I'm researching, things that are put into my book, of course, what I argue is that's the Cold War competition that's kind of driving this divergence. Um, but, you know, if you just want to think about it in a different way, um, there's certainly ideological differences between what um, the early West German administrations, um, particularly under the Christian Democrats, are pursuing. There's ideological differences with what the East German communist government's pursuing, um, but we also can't chalk this all up to ideology. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there are pragmatic reasons why it develops that way as well. Um, and, you know, and, and part of that has to do with, um, again, this kind of um, demographic imbalance, because even though there are seven million women, more women across Germany, that balance um, or the proportion of that number is much higher in the East, um, simply because of the way that, um, East and West Germany end up breaking apart. Um, so what that means is East Germany has a pragmatic need for more women in the workforce. So as much as they they toot the horn of you know women's emancipation and this is what communism is all about, um, in a certain element, um, to some degree, is true um, of that. It's you know it's also just the fact that they they, they need, need them. Yeah, yeah, they need them um, to work, um, and so. You know, and if we look at that side by side, um, it's interesting, too, because especially in, I think, the 50s and into the early 60s, um, we don't necessarily see dramatic differences in terms of numbers of women in certain professions or certain fields in East and West Germany, too, and that only begins to diverge later on. Um, so there's there's just a lot of really fascinating stuff there, I think. Um, but... The thing that I'm arguing, at least with the particular piece of work that I look at, um, which, as you have already alluded to, is family law reforms, um, is the fact that, um, you know, in this case, this very specific instance, because I can't speak for, you know, um, university education or other fields, but this is the thing that I, I know most about, is, um, you know, they're dealing with the civil code, which goes back to 1900. It's a very patriarchal law. You know, mm -hmm. men get to make all decisions for their wives. They get to control their wives' property, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this law miraculously stays on the books for the next 50-some years. Um, you know, it, through every tumultuous change in regime, uh, that law manages to stay there. Um, it's not to say that feminists didn't critique it. They did. Um, but, uh, they just the didn't get there. rid of it. Yeah, yeah you know, and it's... Even the Nazis were going to change it. They were going to add more, even more racialized language to it. And then they started a war and they kind of, you know, shoved it back under the rug. Yeah. Um, you know, so, um, so yeah, so it's still there, you know, after the war. And, um, you know, there's a variety, again, of, of women's groups who are really pressing this issue and saying, now's the time, right? Everything's destroyed. Let's start over. Um, <clears throat> But, you know, as they get caught up in, I think, in this, this politics, the Cold War politics between East and West, that also begins to change the way that family law is going. Um, and it becomes this, this weapon um, of the Cold War. 
Um, and so partly, again, for ideological reasons, but also partly for pragmatic reasons. Um, men are not returning home. Um, you know, those who are returning home um, are not always in the greatest mental or physical state. Um, you know, there's reasons for that many women in particular want to start thinking about things like loosening up divorce regulations or easing up marital property regulations or, I don't know, not having their husband make old decisions for them in their, their lives, particularly with children. I mean, exactly. one of the things that comes up a lot in these debates is that while their husbands are away, women are already making these decisions for their families. Um, and so for the husband to come back and then insist that it's his right to do this after she's been caring for the family for, in some cases, you know, close to a decade. If he was off, if, if he was in some Russian POW camp and didn't come back till the mid 50s, mm -hmm. um, you know, you're talking about a long time away. And so, you know, there's very pragmatic reasons driving this as well um, of women saying, you know, the law just doesn't fit our sociological circumstances any longer. Um, and so, but then, of course, you've, you've got this extra layer of the Cold War and a divided Germany. So it, it creates this really interesting situation, which is, I think, somewhat rare, um, at least as far as comparative analyses go, in that they're dealing with the same starting point, but they're going off in different directions with it um, for those for those various reasons I just outlined. Um, and so to some extent, that explains why we end up with diverging, um, diverging expectations, I think, at the very end of it. Um, and, you know, and similar debates will happen with um, with women's employment, with with other, of, um, you know, abortion, of course, is another one that that um, comes up a lot. Um, but, yeah, that's partly to ex explains why we end up with with very different norms, different expectations, different laws, different policies. Yeah, the. Um that is, uh, I do agree with you on uh, the fact that uh, Germany is a, uh, Cold War Germany is a uh, special entity that you can do a compare and contrast. And it's amazing that you're able to um, do this with uh, women's rights, being able to start this same starting points and then see how these two paths divulge. Um, and uh, with uh, the right, the rights of property the, of themselves, uh, which is, Something that is very difficult for um, uh, uh, people to wrap their heads around is that you know that this is a fight for your, uh, your own self, for your own rights, uh, for your own property, uh, for your kids, and so forth. Uh, that comes into part of the familiar law, um, and then uh, includes the more uh, the stuff that you know we deal with today, which is abortion and uh, and the likes of that. Uh, all that is part of your research, and uh, that's very fascinating. The competition you mentioned has me very intrigued. What's this? Um, how does this become a competition between the two? Yeah, well, um, so this begins fairly early on. Um, and it's really a, a competition on several different levels, right? Um, but the kind of the, I guess, the, the point where I start analyzing it is actually with the constitutional debates. Um, so starting in 1948, um, East Germany begins its own constitutional convention. Uh, West Germany, just a few months later, starts its own. Um, and the idea, at least initially on paper, um, on the East German communist side, is that they're going to start a constitutional convention to create a constitution for all of Germany. Um, but of course, with the Cold War flaring up as it is in late 47 and into 48, um, that's not really realistic. Um, but what happens in these debates, um, and again, this starts kind of in East Germany, but then ends up um, playing into the debates in West Germany as well. Um, and I don't want to say that this is all Cold War um, based either, because a lot of the folks who are leading these debates on both sides have already done this in Weimar yeah. um, back in 1919. So there's actually a lot of historical precedent that's playing into this as well. Um, and Weimar, as it turns out, had a very... Um, Limited, but it had a, an equal rights amendment, if you will, um, that says that men and women are basically entitled to the same civic rights and duties. Um, and so it's the way that it's worded is it's, it's clearly meant to be a little bit limited um, and it's clearly meant to be open to interpretation, but it already exists. So we've got folks who are in the East German Constitutional Convention and in the West German Constitutional Convention who are well aware of this, particularly um, female activists uh, who are there. 
And so one of the things that they introduced early on is this idea that there should be some kind of equal rights amendment included in the constitutions, um, but that they don't want to just replicate what Weimar said because that wasn't strong enough. Um, and that kind of using this language of like, you know, um, equal uh, you know, rights and obligations, like, well, what does that mean exactly? Right. Because we could have equal but different obligations, right? So they get into all this really um, complicated language about, do we really mean equal, but equal, but different? Do we mean equal, equal? Um, do we mean equitable? You know, what does, what does all this mean? Um, and so uh, essentially what then happens um, in this period is East Germans end up introducing um, a clause that translates roughly to men and women have equal rights. A few months later, West Germans do the same thing. Um, and it's verbatim, almost verbatim, the same language. Men and women have equal rights. Um, and so and even at this stage, the two sides are looking to the other side and saying, well, wait a minute. Their constitutional draft says men and women have equal rights. Well, we don't want to look like East Germans, so we might have to change that. Um, and, right? So there's already from the get go. Right. They're looking at these drafts of each other's um, constitutions. Um, there's definitely some discussion in the media um, on both sides about, well, you know, have you heard about what they're doing in West Germany? Um, right. Uh, and vice versa. Um, so already kind of these seeds of the competition over women's rights are planted. And it's this idea, particularly it's particularly strong, I think, in East Germany, um, a little less so in West Germany. This idea that, like, you know, if we're, we've got to outpace them and we've got to beat them to the punch. And this is one way we can do it. Right. We may not have. Um, the backing of these these wealthy Western powers, um, you know, we've got the Soviets, of course, right? We may not have these other things at our disposal, but what we can do is give women equal rights. And, you know, as communists, we've got the ideology to back us. We've got women out working. Uh, we can make this a reality. Um, as I said, West Germans tend to be a little more hesitant on this and for a variety of reasons I won't go into right now. But, um, you know, so from the get go, right, there's really the sense of, um, you know, we have to beat them to it. And there's a really fascinating point where um, in these constitutional debates where West Germany agrees that they're going to have this very broad men and women have equal rights statement. Um, and then the way that East Germans respond is basically like, you know, shoot, they beat us to it. They already <laughs> passed their constitution. Well, We'll pass the law first. Um, <laughs> it's just like so they're they're clearly being like very motivated, very driven by this. Um, and this never disappears. I mean, as we go through various stages of legal reforms, um, that kind of language remains very present, and, uh, and it's clearly a driving factor in getting these reforms passed. Um, but it also becomes a limiting factor, as I argue at some points, because um, you know. There will be points, for instance, when like opponents of the communist regime uh, will hold that up and say, hey, wait a minute. Um, you kept talking about reunifying with West Germany. And don't you think that passing legal reforms like this is going to mess up that process and it's going to make married couples lives? Because, I mean, we also have to keep in mind that in the 50s, we do have some separated couples who are living on both sides of the border. We have cases of couples that divorce and you get you know, a husband living in West Germany and his wife and child are living in East Germany. Um, and they may be able to correspond through letters and they may be even be able to see each other intermittently, but the fact is they do live in two different places. And so it's interesting because there's opponents of, in this case, the East German communist regime that point to that and say, you know, hold your horses because you're going to make your citizens' lives more complicated if you go down this path. Um, and the communist government actually backs off a little bit um, on the reforms. Um, so, yeah, so I mean, this competition, I think we see it in the discourse, we see it in their responses to each other's drafts and to each other's constitutions. Um, certainly the media is constantly playing up this constant um, competition between the two sides. Um, there's points when East German politicians um, and particularly like the Minister of Justice will reach out to the West Germans and say, hey, what if we did a conference about family law? And the West Germans um, actually decline. They don't. The West German government, because of a, an official policy of non-recognition of East Germany, will not engage. Um, but, there, you know, there are these moments of entanglement um, and of connection where 
um, they are trying to solve some of these really pragmatic issues. Um, so, you know, when I look at the competition, when I look at this connection between the two, I'm really looking at all these different angles of how this plays out um, and why that matters and what impact that has. So, so um, especially early on, are there any um, uh, groups taking advantage of this competition to help promote women's rights that are communicating with each other across the border to uh, trying to boost this competition? Um, let me think about how to frame that. Uh, so one example, I think, of what you're getting at that comes to mind is there's the East German Communist Women's Organization, the, um, the Democratic Women's League of Germany. Um, and this particular organization has a very interesting history because um, it's founded as What's supposed to be there's kind of all these individual women's committees that have sprouted up all over Germany. So the Democratic Women's League is founded more or less as a compendium of all of those things. Right. It's supposed to become this umbrella organization. Um, and ostensibly it's founded as a nonpartisan organization, which makes it a little bit different from some of the other organizations we see springing up out of the Soviet zone. Um and even like their first president or their first chairwoman, um, she's not affiliated with any political party. And that very quickly changes um, mm-hmm. so that that's founded in 47 and pretty much within a year or so she's ousted and they put a communist woman in charge. So it's not that it stays that way, but in theory, it's supposed to be supposed to be nonpartisan. Um, and so it's organizations like that one in particular, and they do have a West German branch that's kind of independently founded later on um, and again has this very kind of murky relationship to communism. Um, I mean, some would argue that they're just straight up communists, but there are members who are part of the Social Democratic Party at first and are very sympathetic to this women's organization. Um, So it's organizations like that that um, I think are facilitating a lot of the communication across borders. Um, It's organizations like that that have like their own newsletters. um, And certainly those newsletters are then being circulated um, you know, published in the East, circulated to the West, um, that kind of thing. Um, and so um, there's some connections there, I think, between groups. Um, but in other ways, of course, they remain very separated. Interesting. Yeah, that that would be, I mean, a competition like that, that is something you just can't pass up on, um, especially when you're uh, dealing with a struggle that has been uh, part of uh, – your entire lifespan and then uh, probably the majority of your mother's lifespan and so forth. Um, the, for, uh, sorry, uh, I had a question and then it was like, nope, I'm gone. Um, oh yes, that's right. For, uh, you mentioned in the fifties in Eastern Germany, there was this kind of, you know, pushback say, wait, we're going too far. Uh, do we see any more instances of where uh, both of them e- either rein it in due to uh, believing they're pushing it too much or there's like a conservative backlash that happens? Um, in the case of East Germany, there ends up, at least with family law, um, that doesn't happen. And the reason why is in part because the regime, well, there's a few reasons, but for one thing, the regime gets smarter um, about it um, in the way that they are pursuing these reforms. Um, but the really, I would argue, one of the biggest things is the construction of the Berlin Wall um, in 1961, because if we think about it, you know, at the moment I was talking about is a little bit earlier in 54. The borders haven't been completely closed off yet. We're still getting this drainage of workers going from east to west, um, particularly young male workers, but, you know, workers nonetheless. Um, and so, the, you know, this is a crisis that the East German government has to deal with, um, and it's very clear that um, that they haven't quite sorted out what that relationship is um, between the two, and because well, the borders are still semi-open. Um, and this comes up to some extent um, in some of the internal discussions of family law reforms, in part because, well, once again, if you've got um, you know, a married man with children and he decides to defect and take off to the West, you know, and his wife's still back in the East. We're dealing with a divided family. That's one thing. Um, But what happens then in 61 is once the wall goes up and once those borders are effectively sealed, um, the East German government doesn't have to worry about this old issue of reunification. And they really, at that point, stop worrying about the divided families, because as far as they're concerned, you know, this division is looking more and more permanent. Um, 
and worrying about bodies crossing back and forth across the border um, or leaving permanently um, just isn't on the table anymore. Um, and to some extent, the regime after this, um, you know, this is also when they're really upping like the Stasi observations. Um, so what I've seen in my own research is some of those groups, particularly like church groups, um, Christians who had been very opposed to the regime's earlier efforts to change the law, um, find themselves silenced um, because they just don't pose the same threat um, that they did before the Stasi's, you know, going to public their public forums, right? They're being observed. They kind of have a sense of what's being argued within these circles. Um, in general, the regime has, um, you know, really worked, I think, to undermine the power of individual groups like like churches, um, and they don't have to worry about their people leaving anymore. Um, so there's a couple different things that I think are very much tied to the, the broader Cold War there um, that influence the way that East Germany um, is reacting to that. Um, and then, I mean, conversely, on the other side for West Germany, because they established this earlier policy of non-recognition, um, you know, that's part of it. Uh, they don't have to worry as much because they're not thinking in terms of reunification, even at this earlier stage in the mid 50s. Um, they refuse to recognize the East and they're they're I mean, effectively, at that point, the Adenauer administration stops talking about reunification. And once they stop talking about it, it goes off the table for them. They're not concerned about legal unity anymore. Um, they're just going to pass laws for for West Germans. Um, so um, I may have lost, lost track of the original question. No, 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 no. That, yeah. um, that was exactly what I was wanting. So um, it's so I'm, was there um, did, did we see a retraction at all on the West side then? In the West, it, the it's kind of a, so I think in the East, in certain ways, you see kind of this this major moment of, um, you know, yeah, of retraction or disruption in 54. And then, you know, things kind of go quiet for a while and then they build the wall and then. The East can kind of pursue its reform. So in that sense, it's sort of linear. The West, though, the interesting thing about the trajectory in the West is that, um, you know, I would argue it's kind of a partial success narrative. You know, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. Um, but constantly with the reforms in the West, um, because I think in part because there's a multi-party system, um, I think because in part of social resistance, particularly women's groups are really pushing back against um, Conrad Adenauer's Christian conservative administration. Mm. Um, all those things are adding up to forcing the Christian conservative administration to make some serious compromises on some fronts. However, that said, the Social Democrats, who are the major opposition party, also have to make some compromises. Um, so as one example, what we see happening in 1957, for instance, and that's when um, West Germany passes the Equal Rights Act, is they do remove a man's right to make all decisions for his wife, but not for his children. Mm-hmm. So he's still more or less considered like the, the sole custodian of the children, if you will. Um, and on the one hand, this can be celebrated as, you know, finally, after 57 years of this, this provision, it's gone, right? Women's groups, this is something that they've been fighting for. So in that sense, it's a real victory. But on the other hand, if they still don't have you know, full decision making over their children, um, that really puts them in a bind. Because if their husband decides, well, you know, this is what's happening with the family and you can take it to court if you want to. But, you know, this is a decision. I want our kids to go to this school or I want to do you know X, Y or Z um, or I want to move. I want to take a job and move to this town because I think it'll be better for our kids to be closer to my parents. Um and the wife says, well, I don't want to move. You know, I don't want to pick the kids up from school and move. Um, she, you know, it really puts her in a bind, right? Because she can disagree with her husband, but ultimately it's his say. Yeah. Um, and what's she going to do if he decides the family needs to move, right? Um, is she just not going to go with her children? Um, you know, and, that, and so these are the types of things that I think like women's groups are pointing to and saying, you know, there's some serious structural issues that, you know, and legal issues and logistical issues that this is going to introduce, Um among other things, if we're not careful. Um, so, you know, they go forward a little bit. They don't quite get all the way on some of the, the reforms that the women's groups are hoping for. Um, those do get overturned at a later date. So, you know, the fight continues. But, um, yeah, it it's, it's, it's yeah, no, exactly. It's a fight. Exactly. 
So, um, who could you uh, tell us a, uh, a couple of these movers and shakers in uh, women's rights on East and West? Sure. Yeah, there's um there's a couple. Um, so I think the the best known one, perhaps there's been several biographies written about her. Um, and she's kind of an interesting figure is Elizabeth Selbert. Um, and she's really instrumental in the very early stages of getting an equal rights amendment put into the West German Constitution. Um, the fascinating thing, though, is that she kind of uh, um, fades away into obscurity after this. Um, she at one point, I believe, tries to run for political office and she doesn't win and she just sort of um, ends up, um, you know, just kind of going back to her day job, so to speak. Um, but she, I mean, she's one of the big names that if, if one was going to talk about one person related to this topic, she's, she's one of them. Um, and she's one of the, what they call the four mothers of the basic law. So there's, there's Helena Weber, Helena Vessel, and Frida Nadig as well. Um, so basically there's a, you know, Frida Nadig is from the, um, Social Democratic Party. Um, Helena Vessel is from the, the center party, which is the Catholic party, which also ends up kind of disappearing in the fifties. Um, and then Helena Weber is representing the Christian Democrats. So it's, it's interesting because these four women, um, even though they represent in certain ways vastly different political interests, um, this is one issue that they do come together on, um, even with their slightly different interpretations of, um, you know, of how to um, put it all into place. Um, on the East German side, there's a few women, but the, the biggest one that comes to mind is Hilda Benjamin. So she um, is kind of this long term communist going way back to the 1920s. Um, she had gotten a law degree at some point. She worked for the Communist Party. Uh, she manages to survive um, life in Berlin during the war. Um, and after the war, she rejoins the Communist Party and kind of works her way up through the, the ranks. Um, and she's most known for by her kind of, um, nickname, I guess you could say, um, of Bloody Hilda. So she oversees a lot of the show trials um, mm. in East Germany. So she gets kind of a bad rap for that. But while she's doing that, and I'm not saying this in any way to kind of redeem her or anything. I just think she's a really complex historical figure. Um, but while she's doing that, she's also simultaneously fighting for women's rights. And she's when she becomes Minister of Justice, um, that's one of the things that's on her platform uh, pretty much immediately is getting family law reforms um, in place uh, and really pushing for more women's equality. Um, so, yeah, so she becomes one of um, one of the, the figureheads of the movement um, in East Germany as well. Um, that's pretty cool. So um, what was her nickname again? Bloody? Yeah, Bloody or Red Hilda is what Red they call her. Okay. Yeah, so. Yeah, with a nickname like that, you know, it's probably not going to uh, be a, a good one. Uh. Yeah, and there's somewhere on Google, there's a really creepy image of her like six months before she dies, like sitting with children. I don't know if they're her grandchildren. I don't know if it's like a propaganda image or what, but she looks really like happy and smiley. And it just kind of it's very jarring to, to look at um, with her past. Right. Um, um, so. When uh, when unification finally happens, because spoiler to the listeners, that does happen eventually. Um, how uh, how this familiar law and uh, women's rights um, between these two meld? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the the complicated part about that um, in terms of melding is that um, East Germany is more or less subsumed by West Germany at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't really see an equal melding, so to speak. Um, East Germany is more or less expected to um, conform to yeah, and adopt um, West German laws. Um, so all these these pieces. So in the I'll add to that in the 70s, um, the East German state or as Konrad Jarosch calls it, the welfare dictatorship, really, they really expand the welfare state in East Germany um, for a variety of reasons. Um, and that's where we get like the state subsidized daycare, um, you know, the longer maternity leaves and some of these other things that women are used to. Um, and so all those things disappear in 1990. Um, and and that for I would guess, you know, it's interesting because if you would talk to some East German women now, not all of them, obviously, but former East German women, um, you know, a lot of them look back on that very far. Fondly, um, with a certain sense of nostalgia that even though other parts of the regime were not great, right, there's, you know, we're talking about a surveillance state, right, and shortages of certain foods or whatever, right, 
um, that the one thing that they did right was women's rights. Um, and that, um, you know, I, I remember talking to um, kind of a family friend who lives in Germany, a uh, former East German woman, and um, her daughter-in-law is um, also, well, daughter-in-law was born in East Germany, but primarily raised in a reunified Germany. Um, and so all the things that she saw as a child that her mother had, like childcare and all these other things, were gone by the time she was having her own children, um, you know, living in this reunified Germany. And so for years, you know, all she heard from family members like, oh, so great under East Germany. You would have never had to worry about childcare. You would have never had to worry about this. Um, and then suddenly, you know, for her, it's not there. So she and she has kind of this, she had this interesting perspective. I'm like, well, you know, I'll never really miss it because I didn't have it. But I've heard so much about it that I kind of wish that we had something like that. Um, and so, you know, I do think that's created, um, you know, what some scholars have called like the wall in, in their minds, so to speak, that, you know, they're one country, but some of these kind of cultural assumptions or social assumptions that they may have had from an earlier era or this nostalgia for things that they don't have anymore, um, even, you know, 30 some years later um, are still, I think, kind of alive and well. I actually have a, a friend who's uh, in a similar situation. She lives in uh, Kupnik, and uh, she's born uh, the year before unification. And so her her mom actually had to go through that transition, and she was a single mother and all that. And uh, talking to her about that, she that was because um, when I visited her, I was like, "So you know, do you miss anything about Eastern?" And she goes, "The childcare was nice. <laughs> it was nice being able to have that, uh, especially being a single working mother." Um, and so it is it's very sad that um the that part of East right. Germany was lost uh with Absolutely. the unification. Um yeah. did they but, pull know, anything? Oh I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh well I was just gonna add too that I mean on the other side, as much as it was great that the you know, the communist dictatorship did all this and so on, um the one thing that they did not have was an individual feminist movement, right? They didn't have kind of this autonomous feminist movement that West Germany had. Um, so in that sense, you know, for some East German women, it was actually really exciting to finally have access to kind of a civil society and a place where um, these kinds of ideas about like feminism and women's rights could be openly discussed in a place that was kind of outside um, this communist framework. Um, so I was just going to add that in, too, that like, you know, it's not like all that or no, that's not the greatest way to that's not the most scholarly way to frame it, right? But there are certain East German women who are kind of fascinated by some of these ideas that um, have taken hold in West Germany because there is an autonomous feminist movement um, that comes out of basically the 1960s, um, in 1968 in particular, um, and they're doing some really fascinating stuff there. So, um, you know, there's kind of, um, I think that's very attractive, too, to some women. Um, yeah, having access to that political discourse would be nice, um, no doubt about it. Um, is there um, is there any connection to these movements that we're seeing to the um, to the global uh, perspective? Uh, and you know, like the United States, anything like that? Not sure if you've been able to do any research on that, but I'm just curious if there's any ties in with that because you mentioned the '60s and '70s <laughs> when we're having our own uh, uh, movements here. Uh, so I was just curious. Yeah, absolutely. There's actually a really long history of that going even back way back to the 19th century of, um, of various independent women's organizations um, meeting in these large congresses. Um, and so sometimes that's within like um, like uh, socialist kind of networks. Um, we'll see socialist women meeting, um, but other times they, they don't do that. Um, of course, I'm a specialist on primarily the late 40s and into the 50s. Um, and so a lot of the work that I've done is based on that. Um, but even at this stage, uh, we see, um, for instance, I think I mentioned before, like the American military government um, is uh, reintroducing all these uh, democratization initiatives and they're drawing in West German women, particularly from these independent women's organizations to participate in that. Um, what some of those women then do, which is really fascinating, um, is they have these, they kind of restart these, these international meetings or congresses. So you're getting women from Belgium, you know, from Norway, um, you know, mostly from other Western bloc countries meeting to discuss, you know, hey, how's rebuilding going in your country? What do women's rights look like there? Hmm. Um, but also like the American government, um, I'm not 100% clear on who pays for it or, you know, exactly 
Um, but they do sponsor, to some degree, um, exchange trips to the U.S. So we get German women in the late 40s going to the U.S. basically to meet with American women's rights activists and um, mostly women who are kind of connected with the women's department that's within um, the military government. Um, and they do things like they take tours of American homes and they look at the appliances that American women have in their kitchens. Um, and the purpose of this is to sort of say, like, you know, with the with a home that's set up like this, with appliances and so on, right, um, and with the proper education, you can become an ideal citizen and you can go out and volunteer to help, I don't know, run an election or run the polls, right? Um, or you can, you know, contribute to your local civic organization. Look at what American women are doing. You can be like that. Um, and then, you know, we've, of course, got a lot of American women coming over um, as part of the military government, um, either because they're married to officers who are in it. Um, and they need something to do while they're in West Germany. So, you know, they go hang out with West German women and learn about their lives. Um, and some of them arrive in a more official capacity because they're working for the, the military government. Um, you know, so we've got connection that way to some of these international movements. Um, you know, in the Eastern Bloc, of course, we're going to see organization there among different um, women's organizations from all the different Eastern Bloc countries as well. Um, in, at least in the 50s, there's going to be some crossover where sympathizers in the West are going to go to those conferences in the East um, and get in major trouble for it. Um, because, you know, oh, how dare they, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but also what's really interesting is by the 60s and 70s, we're going to see this circle expanding um, to also include members from the global south and particularly from recently decolonized countries. Um, so there's some there's some really fascinating um, like women's conferences that start to take place, um, often under the auspices of organizations like the U.N., but not always. Um, and they, too, are going to bring up and discuss and talk, um, you know, last year, last semester when I was teaching uh, Europe since 1945. One of our class exercises was based on that. You know, here's an international women's conference in 1975 and each of you represent a different um, different organization. And I kind of gave them some some clues as to what that might look like. You know, if you're a woman from India, how does your view of women's rights look different from a woman from West Germany? Um, and so, you know, so it's, you know, it was really exciting to kind of see the students get into it and you start to see the, the wheels turn as they, they start to put together that, oh, there actually is a global perspective to this. Um, and these women were actually meeting with each other and here's, you know, we've got them in our hands. She gave us the PDF on, um, you know, on Schoology that says, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, tells us the transcript of this meeting, what they're talking about. So. That's really interesting. You know, the, uh, the global aspect of it uh, would be fascinating to study then the um because the the brief um introduction i've had into uh gender studies in german history has always been uh internal look or uh one was uh women in the german empire so you know it's dealing outside of germany itself but it's still from a german perspective um so it'd be very fascinating to uh, read some more about that. Um, for uh, would you have any recommendations for anyone who uh, would like to learn more about this field, like where to go or uh, what to read, maybe? Um, I mean, there, well, there's. So I mean, thinking about the global angle. So this is actually something that I think is very much like a frontier of the field at this moment that needs a little more work done on it. Um, the first book that comes to mind, which I think is just a, like a great starting point. So if you sort of just want like a primer on how to get into it and then want to go from there. I was just looking at this book today by Myra Marks Faree um, called I think it's Global Feminisms. But it talks about, you know, East and West Germany, um, you know, in some of their relations, I think, with the global south. Um, you know, so that would be just a good starting point. Um, gosh, I would have to. I might have to just email I know, it's you a, a loaded question. Someday. Yeah, no, I was just I mean, thinking about these titles. So it's like I see them all on my shelf in my brain, like at work, Shut so I can't, <laughs> can't think of their titles at the moment. Um, but I do think this is kind of an emerging field um, because we also have to think about, um, you know, and I'm not the first historian to say this, obviously, that, you know, East and West Germany, and I guess West Germany in particular gets a lot of attention on this front. In the post-war period, um, is also confronting what it means to be or to look German, 
Um, right. We're talking about migrant workers coming in in the late 50s. This particularly hits ahead when Turkish migrant workers um, are invited to, to West Germany to work and stay. Um, you know, clearly right now with the refugee crisis, um, this is something that Germans are still contending with. You know, what does it mean to to look German, to speak German? You know, is to, is German? Does that mean to come from some kind of Judeo-Christian background doesn't mean something different. Um, and so I think there's been a lot of um, really fascinating work that's just coming out now on um, what some of those discussions uh, look like, you know, how to deal with Turkish families, for instance, um, or Turkish women. Uh, Rita Chin uh, is kind of the, the, the groundbreaking author on that front. Um, and so um, she talks about guest workers and particularly their take on gender um, and so there's just been some really, really fascinating work um, done recently, and it's still coming out. Um, a lot of people like me who like wrote their dissertations on this are now editing and trying to write a book and trying to get it published, you know. Um, and so um, a lot of great, really great work um, being done also on like Afro-German experiences. So I definitely want to make a comment there about that. Um, you know, all of that's, I think, emerging at this point in time. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just really fascinating. Um, we're also starting to see more and more work done on East Germany and kind of the um, the global south, but also the second world. Um, so a lot more on like how East Germans set up their relationships with, um, you know, with Vietnam, for instance. Right. Um, there's been some work on like Vietnamese migrant workers who go to East Germany. Um, there's been some work on um, kind of. Various students who go from Africa, I think from Mozambique, but I would have to double check that, um, to East Germany to study. Um, and then that creates this whole new discussion about, well, when those people stay and they marry German women or they, you know, they're cohabitating with them and they have children, you know, what are their lives going to look like? Right? How are they part of this? Um, so, yeah, there's all kinds of really fascinating stuff on, on global global histories of Germany that are, I think, coming out and emerging right now. That'll be very interesting to see. So you yourself are still part of a uh, film that for many people is uh, relatively uh, new to them. It's uh, gender studies is um, has is coming out more and it's very I'm very glad it is. Uh, but for many people, it is still a film that uh, they don't know much about of, and um, they're still trying. Uh, they still discover uh, every day uh, in their own readings and or listening to podcasts and so forth. Um, could you uh, maybe expand a little bit on uh, uh, gender studies in Germany? Um, now, how has it grown uh, since it's uh, since it began in German uh, historiography and so forth? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so. I mean, very similar to the U.S. in certain ways and very different in others. Um, if if we're looking at kind of the origins of women's and gender history as a field, uh, we can look to the 1960s um, and particularly 68 and the feminist movement. Um, so I think it's really fascinating about women's history and gender history, um, really on both sides of the Atlantic, is just that it's um, always had these deep ties to an activist movement. Um mm. Right. The personal is political. And for historians who are studying this, right, um, one could argue that I guess the political becomes the historical, right, or the academic, um, because as they're confronting their own issues, right, in West Germany, for instance, with childcare um, or the struggles of balancing, I don't know, full time school and young children and a job right, and everything else. Um, you know, West German feminists, um, similar to their counterparts in the U.S., um, are kind of looking at this and saying, well, where have we seen this before? You know, is there, how do we, how did we get here, right? What's the history of this movement? Um, and they're starting to look at, at the roots of some of those historical inequalities. Um, I will say, too, that something that is different, at least in the West German context compared to the U.S., is you don't have the same amount of um, of institutionalization, I guess you could say, of women's and gender studies. Um, so, you know, starting in the 70s in the U.S., we see women's history courses being offered. Um, and um, for a long time, you know, many of those women were sort of these lone rangers, if you will, in their departments, right? They might be trained in something more broad, like U.S. history or European history. Um, and many of them are, you know, they'll recount to in their interviews that 
Um, you know, they were told in the 70s, like, no, don't write your dissertation about women. Nobody's going to want to read that. Um, and so, you know, it's it's this very contentious topic. But a lot of them, they, you know, they finish whatever their dissertations were on. They get jobs and then they become the pioneers. They start offering a women's history class here and there in addition to their other other things. And what that then does over time is that develops um, in, in many colleges, at least in the U.S., into small but flourishing um, women's first women's studies departments. It later becomes women's gender departments. Nowadays, it's women, gender and sexuality. Um, and so um, so we see that um, pretty much, I would say, from the 80s on starting to develop. Um, and it gets to a point where in the 90s, you're actually getting Ph.D. programs um, in women's gender and sexuality studies. Um, and so what used to be sort of, well, you know, this person's trained in, in this discipline of English literature or history or, you know, sociology, and they also do stuff about women, um, it becomes a field in and of itself. Um, in Germany, however, we don't see the same trajectory happening. That has to do a lot with different hierarchies within German academia and so on. Um, so there are many well-established um, you know, historians in Germany um, who have written just awesome dissertations and books um, on German gender history in, in particular. But a lot of them end up not finding a footing in the academy because there's not a department for it. Um, and... The German Academy is also a lot smaller. Um, and so there was something as of, I think, 10 years ago, something like only four chairs in Germany um, as a whole that were in any way related to women's history or gender history. Um, whereas in the U.S., you have entire departments devoted yeah. to it. Um, and so there's there's some serious um, structural differences um, that have resulted um, you know, in, in very different trajectories in many ways. But if we look at like the types of themes that historians of, of gender in Germany are researching, um, I think they're interested in a lot of the same questions as their counterparts in the U.S. Um, you know, part of it is looking at kind of, like I said, the roots of the social inequalities, looking at structural differences. Um, but also, you know, as gender history develops as a field um, in the late 80s and into the early 90s, looking at the discourses surrounding masculinity and femininity um, and what that that means exactly. Um, and then, of course, as you get into the 90s, you start to get more um, on sexuality, LGBT history and so on. Um, but, yeah, I would say in that sense, um, you know, German gender his historians um, have been right there. And in, in certain fields, like, for instance, in the study of um, like masculinity studies, um, some German historians actually got into that before Americans did. So, um, you know, um, so and, and a lot of this has also emerged, I'll say, from very productive transatlantic dialogues, you know, mm -hmm. meeting at the same conferences, forming working groups. Um, and, and yeah. So. Interesting. Yeah. The. Um I didn't realize it would uh, be such a dra drastic difference between um, Europe and uh, America's um, growth in that field. So I know in my college it, uh, we had we had one class uh, in my uh, in my university. We had one class for uh, gender studies, um, and I'm drawing a blank on what I think it was. Um, it was early American. Uh, that's right. Um, so it's it was still it's still struggling in a couple of our universities to make the foothold that it needs to. But yeah. uh, hopefully it, it will. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, with chronic underfunding issues and understaffing and so on at a lot of um, American universities, um, you know, that tends to be one of the departments that gets kind of glossed over or cut um, early on. So, um yeah, you're not lying about the underfunding and <laughs> understaffing. That's always an issue with American colleges. Yeah. So, well, um, is there um, is there any interesting antidotes or uh, stories from your research you'd like to share to you know uh, help us wrap up? Oh man, um, there are so many good ones. Um, but let me think. Well, here's an interesting one. Um, just to illuminate kind of how weird some of these issues can get from the, um, so this one comes from the East German context. Um, the year I think was 1954, but I'd have to, I'd have to go look again, but it's roughly around that period, around 
late 53 early 54. Um, so this is the moment when the East German government uh, introduces its draft of its family law to East Germans. They publish in their newspapers. They're holding public forums about it. You know, they're trying to educate East Germans about what this law is going to entail and how egalitarian and how socialist it is and how it's great for their solidarity and blah, blah, blah. Um, the problem is, you know, there's parts of this law that don't really cover every single aspect of every single East German's life, which might be expected. Um, so um, in this case, there is a couple who, I guess, approaches their lawyer and he's the one who writes to the Minister of Justice with this query. And he says the the couple is trying to figure out. So all of their assets are invested in livestock because that's their livelihood. They're farmers. They've invested in cows. What they want to know is if that's the case, if that's where all their property and their assets are invested, if they get a divorce, um, which way do you cut the cow? <laughs> right. If, if everything is supposed to be divided in half, what are they supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so they don't, they don't get a great answer from from the regime about that because they're kind of like, oh, I don't know, we'll just cross that bridge when you get to it. Right. Um, but it kind of it, it was sort of illuminating to, to read this almost, you know, kind of what sounds like a satirical letter, but isn't. Um, because you start to think about, yeah, I mean, there's there's serious structural issues here where from the regime's perspective, they don't want to adhere to these old bourgeois notions of property rights. Um, and they clearly don't want to continue replicating this idea that like a, a husband just takes control of his wife's property and there's no equality. So they've suggested that, you know, you can just divide the assets equally. But, um, you know, this isn't it doesn't work that way. Right. I mean. Um, in this case, you know, they're dealing with primarily living beings and um, and it's it's their livelihood. Um, and then, of course, and I think at this stage, it's I, I want to say it's primarily the husband's livelihood, too. Um, so it's like, well, then um, that's really leaving her kind of out on the edge here because, um, you know, it, what how is she supposed to continue profiting from this? It's not her job. Right. Um, and so, yeah, so anyway, that was kind of a, a weird one, but that was one that came to mind. Um, yeah. Um, and then there's all kinds of interesting letters about things like, you know, um, uh, dealing with like out of wedlock children, um, like what their rights are, um, adultery, like where that falls into family law. What, what do you do with children who are born out of wedlock because of adultery? You know, you, there's all kinds of there's lots of like angry aunts and grandmothers writing and being like, you know, this young woman seduced my son and now she's pregnant. And we need to know what the property rights of this kid are going to be under this new law. And you didn't explain what to do with kids like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, they're just coming up with like every single example that you can think of. But there, there's just a lot of really, really kind of off the wall stuff that they write in about sometimes. Um, but you also realize that, like, you know, these are to people who are petitioning the East German government, um, you know, there may be a kind of limited way to do this, right, um, because of you know, the constraints of living under communism. But these are real issues to them. You know, mm-hmm. if the law changes, what does that mean if that child suddenly has more rights than he had before? Um, it's It might be important for that child's mother and that child to have equal status in society but there's going to be people in society who don't see them that way and don't want to see them that way for a variety of reasons, right? Because they want to protect their own property. They want to protect their own social status. Um, so you start to realize, you know, that they, you know, as, as funny or as like comical as they are as you're sitting in the archive reading these letters that, um, you know, that these are the real day-to-day stakes for some folks um, and, and they want clear answers and they can't always get clear answers to that. Interesting that uh, prop, uh, property and um, the rights to it would be such a big issue in you know, a communist government. Something that you know that's kind of like their whole thing is property is not supposed to be an issue. <laughs> it's supposed to be the states, um, right? And then I mean that just shows you the complexities of like trying to transition out of this very bourgeois sense of like personal property into a communist society. Um, you know what do you do with that? So. Um, you can't you can't just expect everyone to accept uh, this whole new idea right off the bat. Exactly. <laughs> there are going to be lingering uh, lingering thoughts and exactly. lingering beliefs. 
So, well, that's very interesting. Yeah. Remind me a little bit of um, the King Solomon story uh, from the Bible. Um, oh, right. Except, yeah. The the mother. Yeah, he knows who knows who who will be the real mother because she'll, um, you know, she'll protest when the baby gets cut in half and they have to choose which way to cut it. Right. Something like that. Exactly. At this time, it's the mothers who come up with the idea of cutting the baby and King Solomon's like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. what do we do? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, and there's just, there's other stuff that comes up too, like family names, you know, there's even like hardcore communists who are like equality, 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 but it should still be the man's name when a couple gets married because they argue it's for unification. It makes it easy to understand who's related to who. Um, and, um, you know, so they try to argue that it's not about like keeping up these old patriarchal norms, but it's just for a sense of stability. But the fact is for the women on the other side of it, it looks just like the old system, right? So there's all kinds of like stuff that we don't necessarily think about and a lot of issues that I didn't necessarily think about going into the archive, but you know, were brought to light for me and I'm hoping I can bring it to light for other people too. Well, we look forward to it. So um, I know you're in the process right now. You're taking, um, you're editing your dissertation. You're turning it into the book. Um, that is a long and arduous task. I, I don't envy you. <laughs> it is it is not a fun thing to do, but uh wish you the best of luck with it. Um, how long have you been uh, doing that? Um, I mean, on and off since I finished. I finished in 2017, but I think most intensively the past two years or so. Um, I'm, I'm sure COVID kind of helped with that. Like, you got nowhere to go. You might as well. Honestly, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of discourse, I think, especially back in the beginning of COVID. It's like, well, you know, you shouldn't feel compelled to do extra work, right, because it's a traumatic time. Um, but yeah, for me, it was like, well, I'm not going to Germany this summer and I'm not doing all these other things, but I do have a book that needs to be written. So, um, yeah, I stayed at home and typed away at it. So, um, I wish you the best of luck with it. Um, I know the deadline, you don't have a set deadline yet, correct? You're still on. That's right. Yeah. Uh, we will, uh, you'll definitely have to let us know when that is coming out. So that way we can uh, make sure to get that. I will definitely be adding it to my library. Um, I've, Always try to keep an eye out for uh, new um, new books in German history, uh, just to constantly uh, improve my already like six or seven bookcase library I got going on, <laughs> and uh, see what see what uh, else I need to catch up on. And familiar law, especially with dealing with Cold War Germany, will be something that um, I will I would love to be able to use your book once we reach that era of our podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Rubel. Um, yeah, thank think- you. All right. And for the rest of y'all, uh, I hope y'all enjoyed this episode. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out uh, to myself uh, and I can forward them on to uh, Dr. Rubel. You can also find her online on Twitter. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I forgot the handle. Uh, oh, Rubel History. Rubel History. Uh, so uh, feel free to check her out there. She um uh, posts uh, about as often as I do, and she's uh, she. Uh, what caught me was her t- uh, was her mentioning of her dissertation and all that. So, highly recommend checking her out. So, uh, take care, everyone, and I will see y'all in the next episode.